Mediation is a process where parties meet with mutually selected, impartial, neutral party who assists in the negotiation of their differences. Mediation leaves the power of decision totally and strictly with the parties involved. The mediator does not decide what is fair or what is right or what is even just and doesn't assume blame or render an opinion on the merits or the chances of success if this case were to go to litigation. Instead, the mediator acts as a catalyst between opposing parties and interests to bring them together by defining issues and eliminating obstacles to communication while at the same time moderating and guiding the process to avoid confrontation and ill will. Mediators will seek concessions from each side during the mediation process. Now, a mediator is a facilitator, and generally businesses and countries choose this route as a more cost-effective alternative to litigation or to outright war. And in some countries, like Australia, Great Britain, and Germany, mediation is required in cases of divorce or family conflicts. It is part of their law to try and mediate these disputes before they actually even go to court. And even here in the United States, in various counties, there are appointed mediators who are often brought into these litigation processes, especially in cases of divorce proceedings and child custody cases, to try and mediate disputes and alleviate some of the backlog and pressures that are being placed upon our court system to have to resolve these kinds of disputes. Mediation has been around a long time, going back centuries before Jesus uh, walked on this earth. It was exercised in, a great, in ancient Greece, and it became very popular in the Roman Empire. In fact, the Romans went through a series of different names that they called uh, what a mediator was. It started out, uh, first of all, as an intercus. And let me repeat that again here. And inter, internicus, that's what it is. Internicus. And uh, that's where we get our word tourniquet from. You know, where you apply a, a direct pressure with a, some kind of a band or rope or something, a belt, to try to stop the, the, the hemorrhaging, the drastic hemorrhaging. It went on from there that these people were called mediums or they were called intercessors. And then later they were called philanthropists. And then interpolators and conciliators. And then it was interlocutors. And then they came to be known as interpreters because they were interpreting. And finally, just before the time Jesus came to the earth, they were known as mediators. Well, today in our sermon series, Trusting God, where we've been learning about the attributes of God and what we've called and, and theologians call the perfections of God, last week we learned that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one. And this week now, we're learning about our God, the mediator, specifically Jesus who mediated and who mediates between a fallen, sinful humanity and a holy, just God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 sums this up like no other when it says, For there is one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. This tells us that Jesus, who's fully God, became fully human to mediate our differences with God. The Apostle Paul talked a little bit about this in Philippians chapter 2 as well, in verses 5 through 8, when he said, In your relationships with one another, 
have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. This highlights Jesus as the example that we should follow in dealing with all of our disputes with others in life and using the very process Jesus did in humility and, and mediating. Now, to truly understand the need for a mediator, to truly understand our need for a mediator and the deep chasm that exists here between God and, and us, we have to understand or consider, I can't say understand, we have to say consider God's holiness. The problem we have, though, is that we really can't comprehend God's holiness because it's one of the attributes of God that we have no comparison for in our existence. God is completely untouched by and separated from all that is evil. It's not just that God is morally good. God is separated from everything that is tainted by sin. Now we, on the other hand, are sinful at birth, having fallen natures when we come into this world. And we are also sinful by choice. And we can't really envision a life and a world being free from the effects of sin. We don't really know what that is. And yet, that is who God is. To God, sin is offensive. Sin is abhorrent because God is holy. We can actually find sin to be pleasurable and agreeable. Thus, it can be tolerable to us. That juicy bit of gossip just tends to fill us up. That laughter at someone else's expense makes us feel better about ourselves. That lust-filled glance imprints deep in our minds. We can see that in pictures years later. And we can't remember what we ate for breakfast two days ago. That sarcastic remark makes us feel good about putting someone in their place. Oh, I told them, I put them in their place. That passive-aggressive behavior makes us feel superior to others. That moment of glory for our spirituality reinforces our self-righteousness. And who can forget that moment of self-determination that strokes our egos? See, we have trouble relating to a holy, just God. Hebrews eleven twenty four and 25 says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Sin is pleasurable for a season. And our human natures know that all too well. We are not wired up on our own to choose suffering as Moses did instead of the passing pleasures of sin. We're prone as fallen sinful human beings to satisfy ourselves. When we look at the theophanies of God in the Bible, now theophanies are the appearings of God in the Bible. There are many of them. Some direct, some in visions, uh, some in just a voice, uh, but there are many theophanies, many appearings. But when we see these, what do we generally see? We see God enthroned, 
like in prophet Isaiah's vision that he had, or in the book of Revelation. And in those theophanies, what do we see the heavenly hosts doing in those moments? They're singing all about the holiness of God. Like Isaiah 6, verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Or Revelations chapter 4, verse 8. The living creatures are worshiping God, and they never stop saying day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. To all the heavenly hosts, holiness encompasses the totality of God's attributes, God's very being. And often when we worship, we sing about what? We sing songs of, about God's love or about God's grace or about God's faithfulness to us or his power over creation. When the angels are all singing all of the time about the holiness of God. Now please understand, because God is holy, this means that God is good. This means that God is loving. It means that God is just. It means that God is righteous and that God is perfect. God's holiness puts him in a class all by himself, untainted by sin. Now, since I brought up the issue of theophanies today, God appearing to humanity in the Bible, even at times speaking directly to people, how do these fellow human beings of ours respond to these appearings of God? In Exodus chapter 3, Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, when Moses goes up there, there's the burning bush, and he's told there in verse 5 to take off your sandals because the place you are standing is holy ground. Why is it holy? Because God is there. And verse 6 says, then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The holiness of God and afraid to look at him. In Exodus chapter 20, Moses comes down from the mountain of God with the Ten Commandments. And what occurs there? We have all these amazing displays of God's power. We have a theophany that's occurring here. We have lightning and thunder. There's a trumpet that's coming from somewhere, and there's smoke that's covering this mountain. And it's a display that's going to make the announcement of the players today in the Super Bowl, and even the halftime show with all the concert-level noise and all the fog machines and, and everything going on there. It's going to make it seem like child's play. No one watching that game today is going to be cowering over their bowl of chips when it's happening, the halftime display or any of that. That's not going to occur. What does verse 18 say in Exodus 20? When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled in fear. The prophet Isaiah in his great heavenly throne room vision in Isaiah chapter 6, when the seraphim were singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds in the temple shook like an earthquake. And our world knows what an earthquake is right now with what happened in Syria and Turkey. Horrific. The people in Syria are saying, we're used to bombs. We're used to devastation and destruction. Oh, we've never seen anything like this. 20,000 people are believed to have been dead. And smoke is filling the temple while it's quaking, just like an earthquake. 
And what does Isaiah say in verse five? Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The Apostle John, imprisoned and exiled on the island of Patmos, has a vision of Jesus glorified. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. The writer of Proverbs tells us multiple times that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The same writer, Solomon, concludes another piece of his wisdom literature, the book of Ecclesiastes, by telling us that the fear of God is the duty of all mankind. The Apostle Paul, in a compilation of various songs in in the book of Psalms, and also dipping into the prophet Isaiah, points out that the lack of fear of God is actually a mark of godlessness. Listen to what he said. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, the psalmist tells us that our God wraps himself in light, like with a garment, he stretches out the heavens. In Hebrew, that's the word shemayim, he stretches out the skies like a tent. He makes the clouds his chariot, and he rides on the wings of the wind. The late A.W. Tozer, an incredible theologian and pastor, said the greatness of God raises fear within us, but his goodness encourages us to not be afraid. To fear and not be afraid, he says that is the paradox of faith. Dr. Glenn Daham writes, and he's a modern theologian, to fear God and lack confidence before him is to make sin inescapable and unforgivable. To have confidence before God without the fear of God is to make sin acceptable. And many theologians would argue today that we have a a whole host of Christian folks who no longer fear God. That God is sort of this great, big, cuddly teddy bear who strictly exists for our happiness and our well-being and makes no demands upon our lives. Well, as we've just witnessed from the Bible in all those different theophanies, this is not the perspective that's held by God's word. To maintain the proper biblical balance between the fear of God And having that a confidence to approach the judgment seat of God, Christ, we must not only recognize God's goodness, but we have to recognize his holiness as well. In the Bible, we find two essential responses to the holiness of God. The first one we've already talked about 
a bit here today. It's one of worship, to humbly come before God in worship. To worship God is to declare God's worth. It's to place value upon God. And by the way, the word glory refers to that which is of great weight. In contrast to this is the word vanity, which means vaporless or a weightless cloud. And in the third of the Ten Commandments that, Jesus, or that, that Moses brought down from the holy mountain of God says that we're not to take the name of the Lord in vain. And to use God's name in vain is to treat God as if God has no weight, as if God has no value. In other words, as if God has no glory. To take God's name in vain doesn't just mean that we flippantly use God's name, which is part of that meaning, but it means that we make God unimportant in our lives, secondary to everything else in our lives. So I ask you today, have you ever used God's name in vain? Do you ever find yourself making God less important, secondary to all these other interests you have, these desires, these passions in your life? Do you ever find yourself not worshiping God who is holy, perfect, and just? What we've not spoken about directly today, though, is the second response that we see in Scripture to the holiness of God, and that is surrender. Recognizing the holiness of God means that we are understanding that we're in a relationship that we are invited into is not one of equality. In other words, we come to this table and we have nothing to negotiate with. We have no leverage. We have no position or authority that requires God to make any kind of concessions whatsoever. We simply bring ourselves as living sacrifices set apart to God's rule in our lives. And as I mentioned earlier, we can never fully understand God as mediator without recognizing the holiness of God and the universal sinfulness of humanity. Romans 3, verse 10, we just looked at it. None are righteous, not even one. Later in that chapter, Paul says in verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Humanity, which is sinful, needs mediation with a holy God. And God has provided this for us in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says that God demonstrated his love toward us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. When we had nothing to bring to the table, nothing whatsoever, God showed his love for us. Out of his holiness is where that comes from. Because it says in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God uh, in him. No bond between God and us is possible apart from Christ. In fact, Job in the Old Testament times recognized this very dilemma. Listen to what he said, which is believed to be the oldest scriptures in the Bible. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. Well, 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us that now we have what Job spoke of and longed for. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind the man, Christ Jesus. And this is also the same rationale that the Shema in Deuteronomy asks the Israelites to recite and and devout ones would recite this three times a day. Hear, 
Oh, Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and all your soul. See, God is this exclusive one God, and the only way we can be in a relationship with this one God is through Jesus. See, the very harmony that God had in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve was broken by sin, their sin. And the Bible says that we've all sinned in Adam. We're born with our fallen natures and have chosen sin as well for ourselves. So every one of us, we can't blame Adam and Eve because we all too have betrayed God. But here's the good news. Jesus intervened. He planted one foot in eternity and one in space and time and and bridged this gap between God and humanity, dying on the cross paying the penalty for our sin, rising from the dead, victorious over death on the third day. Jesus is the one who made it possible for us to have a restored relationship with God. God intervened in Jesus to bring peace and restore harmony with his created beings. But what we all need to recognize today is that this salvation that we're speaking of is not universal. Everyone doesn't just receive it or automatically have it now because Jesus did this. It requires a response on our part. God has given us free wills as human beings to accept his gift, to accept this sacrifice. It says in John chapter 1, verse 12, yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We're to place our faith in Christ, surrendering our lives to him. And to not do this is to reject Christ. And then it's to face the reality of his coming future judgment all on our own. John 3, 16 through 18 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Notice there's the perishing part in there too. Yes, it's God's love, but he doesn't want people to perish. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. They're not going to perish. They're not among the perishing. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. The one that Dr. Luke told us in the book of Acts, that his name, there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus, Acts 4.12. God's gift of salvation is freely offered. And if we rebuff God's offer, then salvation will have no benefit for us whatsoever. To do so is to reject the only hope that we have. And our only appropriate response is to surrender. It's to receive Jesus by faith. And I have a simple prayer of faith that I'm going to share with you right now. Those of you here, uh, if you've never responded to God's wonderful gift or really understood the holiness of God and your own sinfulness, you can pray this prayer right now. Those of you online listening, same thing. And here's the prayer. God, I understand that I'm a sinner. And because of your holiness... I am deserving of your judgment, but I accept by faith that you sent your son to die in my place and pay the penalty of my sin. 
because of Jesus' work, I ask that you save me from my sin. God, I want to turn from it. I want to turn from sin. And I want to turn my life over to you. Make me one of your children. Amen. You can pray that right now, here in this worship service, or wherever you are listening online. Because Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And listen to this. No one, I'm going to say it again, no one, let me say it one more time so we get the message, no one comes to the Father except through me. Do you remember Job's concern? If only, if only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, there is. And his name is Jesus, the mediator. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your plan from all eternity to send Jesus to this earth to pay the penalty for our sin. And God, we recognize that we can't even begin to comprehend your holiness. And it's your holiness that, that required this mediation but God, we're so thankful for it. And I pray, God, if there's anybody here today that has not come to faith in Jesus Christ, that today's their day, that they will respond and accept Jesus as Savior and Lord of their lives, turning from their sin, repenting of it, and turning to you in the life that you have for each one of us. We pray this now in Jesus' name, amen.